Welcome back to DC EKG, where we diagnose DC's diseases and provide needed policy solutions. Eric, our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, is busier than ever. John Swartaki has been testifying on the Hill. He's been writing op-eds, letters to the editor, and very active on social media, highlighting the reasons why patients like him and the patients of tomorrow need a vibrant biopharmaceutical ecosystem for treatments and cures for today's diseases and new ones that we'll face tomorrow. Joe, you're right. And SurvivorsForSolutions.org, our sponsor, has been a powerful gatherer of voices and views to put in front of the federal government to make sure that the voice and concerns of patients and their families aren't ignored in the day-to-day policymaking here in Washington, D.C. So we're incredibly appreciative of the fact that SurvivorsForSolution.org is our sponsor. And we look forward to more great work by CZ and other members of Survivors for Solutions in the months to come. Today on DC EKG, we're going to change up our format a little bit. We don't have a guest here at the end of the year. Instead, we're going to talk a little bit about five issues to keep an eye on coming up in 2024. First, we're going to look a little bit at a few key healthcare developments that are possible next year. We'll talk about some curveballs, a little bit possible from the left or the right, unanticipated challenges for public policymaking. We'll talk a little bit about what a new Republican administration, a Trump administration, is being asked to think about on day one were it to take office, as well as in the alternative, unlikely event, that Joe Biden is reelected. What would his second term be like? And then finally, we've been asked to talk a little bit about broad election predictions, the White House, the Senate, the House, governors, and who knows what the heck else we might bring up along the way. But Joe, why don't you get us started? So recently, Biden administration issued a memo on the growing magonomics threat of skyrocketing healthcare costs. This was in, you know, sort of a exclamation point on a couple weeks of Biden administration media press after President Trump went out there and made some statements that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was still malfunctioning. He still was interested in taking a look at reforms. The media, of course, seized upon this to start talking about repeal and replace, even though he never used those words. So the Biden administration started to salivate over this and, and issue statements, issue press releases around healthcare, and then they issued this memo. I thought the memo was really striking for a few reasons. One, they stole competition language that was like the centerpiece of the Trump administration's healthcare policy. Choice and competition in healthcare was, uh, to paraphrase the title of an executive order in October 2017, really set the stage for all the regulatory and legislative actions that we pursued um, after the repeal and replace effort collapsed. So they stole competition language in this statement. And then they, of course, began to gaslight saying that uh, House Republicans wanted to increase health care costs by not extending the enhanced tax credits for people, which is kind of laughable because Democrats are the ones who wrote that. With, without any input from Republicans, they put the fuse in that it would, it would expire at a certain uh, period in the future. And then 
they accused Republicans of making devastating cuts to Medicare and Social Security, which is also gaslighting because the ACA, in order to balance it when they pass it, they put a bunch of Medicare cuts in, in the Inflation Reduction Act when they cut Medicare, you know, in order to to set drug prices. They didn't spend it in on Medicare. They they spent it on electric vehicles and and other non healthcare related items. So I thought the and they even spoke about the thirty five dollar insulin cap, which was originally a Trump administration policy, something called the senior savings model, which Biden canceled on day one. And then there was a bipartisan effort to get it going again, led most prominently by Susan Collins, Republican from Maine. Um, and it was put in legislation. So the thing that I thought was interesting about this reading it, and I don't know you and what what you thought, but it looked to me like an administration that, you know, somebody hit the panic button and said, we need to get something else out on healthcare. What do we have in the hopper that we can announce? And they were just sort of flailing. It was not of the theme that they had been pursuing for some time. Number one, um, they hadn't been talking about, um, you know, equity. They hadn't been talking about uh, fighting big corporations and the little guy. They're stealing Trump language. And then they kind of throw this smorgasbord together with a bunch of gaslighting. And it didn't look to me like a well thought out announcement. Now they got some air cover from the media, but some reporters I spoke to seemed to see through it and get, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know what your reaction was to it. You and when you, when you took a look. Joe, you're absolutely right. It seemed as if to your point, the politicians and the politicos inside the white house operation tried to take over, but what they've produced so far has been a weird, an uncomfortable blend of advocacy, which I expect is going to persist into 2024. Look, the traditional Democratic playbook is to attack Republicans and Republican presidential candidates as intent on undoing federal health care, support, stability, and destroy programs like Medicare and Medicaid, as well as undoing Social Security and all the various health care ideas and policies that have been put in place by Republicans and Democrats over the past few decades. At the same time, though, they have a terrible record they have to try to defend and explain. And it's clear that part of what we saw here at the end of 23 is an admission that whatever they were trying to do on behalf of the president's policies, advocating the positive, wasn't working. So flipping to the negative to try to impugn the likely Republican nominee, President Trump, as somebody who's going to undo and repeal the Affordable Care Act, who's going to destroy Medicare, who's going to bring a whole set of extreme policies to healthcare now is the way they want to go. But in 24, I would expect that based on the record that President Trump had his people put together during his first term, where a lot of focus was on the quality and improving the temper of care to individuals, families, groups, all across the board in all the programs that we had, will be things that the president will both want to talk about that people advocating on his behalf will want to explain, and that he will lay out policies and proposals to take us further on things like maternal health and reducing the incidence of infant mortality, truly landing the plane on undoing or eliminating HIV as quickly as possible amongst Americans, 
getting after and actually conquering this this pediatric cancer crisis and and winning there and on and on and on because so much was done on behalf of increasing the quality the availability the transparency and the efficacy of healthcare during the first term which i know you had a key role on and again i expect that while the democrats in the main are going to attack with the same old same old the idea that the the president and his campaign are going to be able to talk in a very creative innovative way is going to really be on the table so i really think this is going to be of course a core of the debate before the election but i think republicans and president trump are really well situated eric let me just chime in there for one second i think one thing that a mistake republicans often make here is to think they can just ignore health care and talking about it in elections and then it's going to go away we want to <clears throat> i think the temptation is we want to talk about inflation we're going to want to talk about uh the disaster with the russian invasion of ukraine we're going to want to talk about the middle east and other foreign policy problems the disastrous retreat from afghanistan and the democrats will want to go on health care but the fact of the matter is you can't i, I don't believe you can you can ignore health care in in an election i don't think republicans can just change the subject it's a big issue for people you know we've won elections before on health care we won elections in the aftermath of the affordable care act six of them right midterm boom midterm boom midterm and um i think uh it's a mistake if republicans are just going to say oh we'll talk about other issues because democrats are going to take this fight to them and the electorate want, you know, yeah, do they want to hear about Ukraine? Sure. Do they want to hear about the Middle East and foreign policy? They want to hear about inflation and energy production? Of course. But don't forget, everybody is a patient or has a family member who's a patient and comes home and is like, man, that was a huge pain in the neck. Man, that was expensive. Can somebody explain this bill to me? Because I don't understand it. And it, it could have gone a lot better. So anyway, I just think that it's something that uh, if, if Trump isn't the nominee, Whoever is the nominee is going to have to fight on health care. And if he is, his instinct is to fight on it. And I think um, I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, totally agree. And absolutely right on your point. Going over on offense on health care always helps Republicans. Let's talk a little bit now about potential curveballs in 24. Uh, clearly, this program, DCEKG, focuses a lot on health care. But health care and health care policy is informed by the macro uh, political environment and a lot of issues that explode and go off both in Washington and D.C. and state capitals during the course of the year. I'll start with uh, the concern or apprehension that in 24, we could see some really unique and potentially unprecedented challenges when it comes to continued difficulties in producing and distributing food supplies, both in the United States and worldwide. Why do I say that? As we know, since the pandemic, there's been a real difficulty with supply chains and the ability of people to get high quality products out to stores and markets and ultimately into people's homes. That has problem has only been exacerbated by the inflation explosion of the last few years. And while the headlines will tell you that inflation overall has gone down, core inflation, so-called core inflation, which focuses on foodstuffs, continues to be relatively significant. And of course, 
inflation is about the aftermath of increased prices where they have run up for two or three years and aren't going to go down anytime soon. That combined with the constant challenges of both making sure you're able to produce enough goods in the United States. We've got a great agricultural system, but we've had significant challenges with drought. We've had significant challenges with supply over the past few years. And then the international situation where the the fight in Ukraine has affected global food supply and global food flows, as Ukraine, of course, is a great breadbasket, not just for Europe, but for the world means that these pressures continue in everybody's pocketbook. And in a world where drought or other weather-related events might make production even more challenging, the concern that people will have for being able to find and afford quality food will, I think, potentially only be more explosive next year in an election year. Joe? That's interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I was listening to something about you know, Argentina has been in the news with their presidential election and them choosing a populist and a and a turn away from socialism. Um, in this discussion, a lot of it was talking about what happens in an inflationary environment. Now, Argentina is obviously a hyperinflationary environment, but one observation or that they were talking about was things suddenly disappear from the grocery shelves without any explanation, like one week there's no cheese or no one particular type of cheese or there's no bread because a particular ingredient shot up in cost and so it's not economically viable for the producer to make it anymore it's an interesting observation that we could have more disruptions in 2024 on the food uh supply chain and somewhat scary to think about um i hope not but it it uh it's certainly a problem I think one thing that I'm starting to envision is more um, protests and potentially violence on the left associated with the Middle East. I mean, we think back to um, Chicago and the Democratic National Convention in 68, which uh, Mayor Daley deployed the cops against a lot of people protesting the Democratic National Convention around foreign policy. And it got very nasty and very embarrassing for the Democrats. Watching some of these protests right now and with Biden has got interns protesting his policy in the Middle East, for God's sake, State Department employees. You've got Democratic members of Congress. You've got rank and file Democrats. I That's the thing that I'm starting to pay attention to is that you could have a group of people on the left maybe missing the thrill of some of the riots that occurred during the during COVID and to get back into the game. And it could surprise Democrats this coming year and at the at, not just at the convention, but in other venues as well. No, that's a great point. And as we've seen here since October 7th and the terrible pogrom in Israel, these protests, to your point, are manifest around the globe and inside the United States, and they're shot through with anti-Semitism. And the idea that a Democrat party is hooked, yoked to agitators and activists who aren't afraid not just to take the streets, but to advocate for the extermination of Jews and act out in terrible and atrocious ways, attacking synagogues, 
knocking over menorahs, uh, threatening and assaulting Jewish individuals on the street uh, is startling. And it's amazing to think that, to your point, a party and its leader on the Democratic side, which in the past has been a very strong and stalwart voice against anti-Semitism, is suddenly facing the consequence of this countenancing of extremism and extraordinary um, attitudes that now result in daily, daily, daily anti-Semitic acts by Americans against Americans on our streets, as well as all the other problems that the rioters and the agitators are, are, to your point, seem gleeful to be causing. Yeah, yeah. Let's say Biden were not to be president in 2025. What kind of executive orders would you see out of a Republican president? Let's just say this. What would conservative and Republican activists want to see in the first six months? Sure. There's there's no doubt that over the past three years, we've seen a lot of energy and super aggressive pro-regulatory agendas out of the Biden administration that have destroyed the ability of the United States to proudly and robustly explore for and develop new energy resources um, that have intervened in healthcare and the decisions between individuals and their, their doctors, their healthcare providers in very significant ways that threaten the potentiality of such a unique jewel of our healthcare system, our pharmaceutical industry, to be able to produce and bring to market creative therapies and drugs for people suffering life-threatening diseases uh, to be able to enhance their quality of life. You just go down the list and you see this administration over and over and over again pick and deploy significant governmental intervention in the market. This doesn't even begin to talk about what's gone on in the financial services industry, the efforts by a variety of uh, chairmen of various regulatory agencies and commissions to impose a Democrat statist, very aggressive regulatory agenda on vibrant sectors of the U.S. economy. So I know that there are lots of members of Congress, lots of people who have worked on this, lots of advocates who have been harmed, injured, or constrained in their ability to just work and live and have their being in the United States who have been pressing Congress and Republicans to make sure that when the the new Republican hand of the president comes off the Bible, that the first thing you turn to is undoing all these terrible counterproductive and dangerous executive orders and executive actions that President Biden and his team have taken. So you will see, I believe, as a result of a lot of push from Congress, a reflection of that agenda to undo a lot, as much as you can, of the Biden uh, Democratic, Congressional Democratic agenda through the regulatory agencies as quickly as possible. So to me, that's the first jumping off point, that there'll just be a lot of demand, pent up need from Republicans in Congress um, and, and Republican activists around the country, please undo all this. Let's get our economy growing again. Let's get our agencies back on track to make sure our businesses can be founded. Small businesses can grow. Our institutions are able to continue to expand and concede. That we're able to create good jobs, new jobs with good wages, 
good standards of living, ability of people to easily access education in their circumstances as they choose without all government picking and choosing, um, and really begin to restore this diminishment of government regulation into the economy, to the lives of individual Americans that we've seen elevated and escalated well beyond what anybody was concerned about when Biden was sworn in. Let's get that undone. So that's where I think things would start. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's universally recognized on the right. And I think the left is alarmed by it, but they also agree that it was successful. The Trump deregulatory agenda was incredibly successful, focused in deregulating large sections of the economy and energy production as well. I think the economic um, analysis of the deregulatory agenda is pretty clear on the right. I mean, the left will discount it, but we got significant economic growth and certainty from the deregulatory agenda that business embraced across the board. Would I, and I do think regardless of if a Republican wins any of the major candidates, you would see a big push in energy production again. Um, the question I would have on that front though, will the energy companies respond uh, because they got so, there was such a knee jerk when the Democrats came, when Biden came in and really clamped down on energy production and canceled permits and did all these things. So I think there will be a push to deregulate in energy, specifically regardless of who a Republican um, president would be. But I just wonder whether or not the, the companies in the private sector would respond as robustly as they did in Trump's first term, um, because the, the feeling was so enthusiastic at the time and the letdown of the Biden administration has been pretty significant. But one would hope that we would get the same type of production and uh, and supply increases as we saw in Trump won. But clearly, I think any of the Republican candidates would pursue a deregulatory agenda just as Trump did. I think he proved something that it was possible. I think he proved that it was that it could be very popular and it's easy. You don't need to go to Congress to do it. And if people if the agencies are are focused and the White House is aligned in pushing the agencies to deregulate, you can accomplish a tremendous amount. So what would what do you think will happen though if if Biden does win re-election? I mean, where is he gonna go? Um, what is the defining characteristic of Biden's philosophy? Where is he where is he gonna take what's he gonna build on term one and what would he do in term two? Yeah, in an alternate earth where he actually wins re-election, there's no doubt that the regulatory agenda and the re-regulation and the constriction of the economy will continue and probably accelerate. As you remember, there's a significant piece of statutory legislation that the president, President Biden and Democrats in Congress were able to push through in the summer of 2022, the inflation, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. A lot of those programs that were contemplated in that bill begin to come online in 25 and become very robust in, in the next few years. So the idea that what the administration is trying to do to regulate a whole new industry into existence for car makers and people who actually drive it and use the internal combustion engine as, as part of their business uh, will only double, triple, quadruple down if 
Biden remained as president. I would expect as well, not just when it comes to uh, the automotive industry, um, to your point on energy, expect additional restrictions and measures to to limit and try to redirect American energy producers to new and hypothetical fanciful uh, propositions about um, energy production. further restrictions and inability to persevere in trying to bring new, cheaper nuclear energy to the fore will probably be the case. You think the Biden administration will make a hardcore press on cheap nuclear energy? No, far from okay. it. Okay. I think far from I it. Okay, good. Say, I misheard the you. other way I around. Yeah, the other way around. No, they're going to try to create every foot dragging impediment they can to what's clearly an incredibly fertile opportunity now for safe, reliable, small, small and deliverable um, nuclear power plants um, that other countries are looking at and adapting as part of their power production mix that we are turning our backs on. Um, so I think you have would have continued problems there. You will see a lot of accelerated efforts by regulators in our financial and banking sectors um, that will continue to create throttles and impediments to economic activity, to growth, to the opportunity of small businesses to be founded and grow over time, um, and for America to remain a significant leader in the world when it comes to the best place to invest and do business and bring your capital. I think that in a second by term, again, in this alternate earth, you can see some real dangerous regulations being brought through that call into question whether or not people really want to come invest in the United States because we have such a great edge or money drifts to other locations that are trying to become, even with all their problems, alternatively attractive so okay wait wait okay i gotta press you on something because you i want to make sure are you are you being tongue-in-cheek in the tongue-in-cheek optimist on biden's re-election prospects and just talking your book or do you really think it's i mean the way you're talking it's almost metaphysically certain that biden is no is not going to get re-elected but how can you say that he's got the van, uh, advantage of incumbency the poll numbers um, are not that bad for him. I mean, they're bad, but they're not so bad um, in a head-to-head matchup against Trump. His approval rating is pretty bad um, in historical comparison. But don't you have to say the incumbent president's got a pretty good shot at getting reelected? This is not um, beyond the realm of possibility. I don't know that I have to say that. And in fact, I do believe it's beyond the realm of possibility. For starters, Joe, don't forget, we're talking about guesstimates for 2024. So uh, I think if you look at some very notorious examples of presidents who really blew the play on real act, including Jimmy Carter in 1980, President George H.W. Bush in 1992, you see very similarly very critical problems that Joe Biden has today. It's not just his soft poll numbers, it's head to head against somebody who is caricatured as the most extreme 
he still loses. When you do the fundamental math state by state for electoral votes, President Trump now has been consistently ahead since this fall when it comes to making sure you have 270 votes on Election Day. When you look at how the state machines match up in these key five or six states where the election is really going to be fought and decided, you see that the Republican machinery is much more significantly developed and able to produce results for voters than the Democratic machine is. You see as well the appreciation of the fact that because so many states went through so many rounds of catastrophic election law changes in 2020, that the goal of freezing those in place and then working hard to develop a competitive advantage with those uh, are both being accomplished by Republicans and, and the Republican National Committee. It takes a lot of wax, the RNC does, and rightly so. But when it comes to framing up early voting, absentee voting, appropriate and lawful ballot harvesting, all that stuff is well underway because if Democrats are going to do it, we need to do it too. Finally, remember that in 2020, President Trump produced the biggest number of votes ever for the reelect of a president. I don't think that number has declined, no matter the hopes of, of the liberal media. I think that that is his base for where things are going to go in 24. Conversely, Biden now has a record, and this record hangs around his neck like two iron bars. It's terrible domestically. It's tragic internationally. We are weaker and less respected overseas. We are more riven with division and despair here at home. That's always a dangerous, dangerous place for any incumbent to be. So what about, okay, well, that that's the most optimistic, uh, lucid, um, <laughs> defense i have seen our prediction on the presidential let's talk about a little bit about the house because the democrats have been uh, as far as i can tell effective in redistricting right like in new york correct me if i'm wrong we did very well on the republican side and the congressional elections because the map was thrown out because the democrats got too greedy and it was too too heavily gerrymandered but now they've gone back and they're going to pick up some seats in New York, correct? And they're trying to correct for some of the mistakes. I mean, some of the mistakes that they've made in the past. So uh, prediction on the House? Yeah, the House definitely is a firefight. And you're absolutely right. New York's uh, front of front of mind right now because for House Republicans, because that is where they won their majority in 2022. And this redistricting makes it very challenging. One of the things that uh, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy did with his campaign hat on that built on some pioneering efforts by a former Republican Speaker John Boehner uh, several cycles ago was, look, in every district, we need to have a credible and potentially winnable Republican candidate in those districts, even those that are plus 40 points for Democrats. Why? Because to the extent that you have a credible candidate, credible campaign, and a credible effort with the right message and the right work against an incumbent, Democrats have to spend money, even though it's minimal amounts, in order to defend those seats, defend the Republic Democratic incumbent. This worked wonders in making sure that Democrats 
while they might have had a financial advantage every two years in these house races overall, had to allocate their resources away from defending, having the most available to defend their most vulnerable seats. Going into the 2024 cycle, something for everybody to keep their eye on, is how well has the House Republican recruitment effort been to try to make sure we've got quality candidates in every conceivable district so that how we is can. We're not doing very well. Right now, we are way behind our pace in 2022 and back in 2010 and 2012. And, and, and Kevin McCarthy's that, leaving. I mean, that yeah. and, and so, so, right. So you've got money, you've got message, you've got digital. I mean, all these things that campaign experts will talk about. For me, I always start with, are there 435 House Republican candidates posting up in all these districts? And of those 435, especially for those vulnerable Biden districts, are those really credible candidates? And right now we're way behind. And finally, don't forget, you've got filing deadlines that are start, already started to hit for house races. And that's only going to accelerate here in the next couple of months. So at some point late in the first quarter of next year, maybe we can come back and talk a little bit about the landscape again with this and other key elements of how to successfully retain a house majority in mind. But Republicans are definitely under stress right now. Clearly they're feeling it. The leadership changeover created additional challenges. And structurally, they're going to have to work hard to make sure that not only do they have their mechanics like candidate recruitment in place, but they also have very powerful messaging and probably, hopefully, alignment with uh, the Republican presidential candidate okay. at the forefront. Okay, so we're going to go with um, most optimistic assessment on Republican presidential, but uh, pretty pessimistic on the House. Definitely a toss up. Yeah, toss up in the house here. I'm going to say I'm going to read between the lines and say you 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 uh, are saying more than a toss up that it's actually worse than a toss up for uh, Republicans in the house. Well, but I'm, you, not saying that I'm just putting words in your mouth. Okay, sure Senate. Sen yeah. All right, short short and sweet. Senate. Um, Senate uh, flipping to Republican control. Yeah. Okay. Senate 52, 53. What do you, what's your number? Yeah, at least fifty three. Uh, if it's a really great night, fifty five. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit, any surprises you're expecting on the governor or any governor's races to watch? Not right now. Uh, it's a great question. Obviously there's, uh, clearly more Republican than Democratic governors. I think one that for everybody to keep an eye on is what happens in New Hampshire. You've had Chris Sununu, who's been a successful governor for eight years, uh, managed to win election and, and re-election four times because it's a two-year term. That's shaping up to be a pretty big battle. Sununu has announced he's not running again. So we've got some candidates on our side. They've got some candidates on their side. The primaries are pretty late, so you've got a lot of Massachusetts transplants who now live in New Hampshire, retirees and the like. I think that's going to be one of the most interesting gubernatorial races in 24. Um, okay. You mentioned Sununu. I can't let this go without talking about 2028, just because I'm sick and twisted. Um, <laughs> does Sununu run for president in, in four years? I think most people start off assuming that several governors or soon to be former governors will be running in 28. Sununu clearly is somebody that lots of people talk about. Um, you'll have Yunkin, who will have left Richmond 
at the beginning of 26 as a governor, single term limit, um, no doubt considering it. DeSantis will be leaving Tallahassee. He might decide he wants to try again. Uh, Sarah Sanders, presuming she's not on the ticket and, and an incumbent vice president as a governor, uh, successful reelect, the, the possibilities there. But you will also have a cohort of senators on the Republican side, at least thinking about it. Uh, anybody from Tom Cotton to Ted Cruz again, maybe Josh Hawley, Tim Scott might want to take another go. And look, the same thing applies on the Democratic side. You'll have several big state governors who will want to go. Whitmer. Possibly, right? She'll be a former J.B. Prisker out of Illinois. Um, Gina Raimondo will have gone through the cabinet and be in the private sector by then. She may want to run. Former governor of Rhode Island. Uh, you just go down the list. Yeah. Uh, Hochul, if uh, she manages to win re-election in New York, second full term. Newsom, of course, the, the big dog on the block. And who knows who else might be elected the next Shapiro from Pennsylvania. Who knows who what other Democrats might be elected as governors. Senate side, it's for Democrats kind of fallow. I mean, I think if you look at uh, Senate Democrats who tried it in 2020, will they want to try it again in 28? Klobuchar or Warren from Minnesota and Massachusetts, respectively? Probably not. But you can't rule it out. Who knows? Cory Booker, give it another whirl. Uh, maybe Ossoff from Georgia wants to try or Warnick from Georgia wants to try. I mean, they're going to have a lot of people uh, spending a lot of time on the rubber chicken circuit in Iowa and New Hampshire in 27 on the Democratic okay. side. All right. That, I'm, I'm already nauseous. I know I asked the question, but it does nauseate. <laughs> it's me. all your I fault, Joe. Me. I know. I know. All right. Um, final off the wall predictions for this coming year. Final off the wall prediction. Rishi Sunak will cling to power in a minority coalition government in the United Kingdom in an election that will be held in January of 2025. Ooh, I love that prediction. Um, I, I'm going to go with, um, uh, I, I, let's say, let's stay in England for a second. Either Sunak clings or they dump him early in uh, 2024, and the and the conservatives still hold on to power. I don't think the I even though conservatives in in England are in this sort of doom loop where they're starting to pine for being out of power with this delusion that they're going to actually get organized in the minority and purge out <clears throat> bad actors in the party and get more intellectually coherent. Um, I think that there is a wide swath of the electorate that is more uneasy with the left than um, is being appreciated. There is a lot of anger at conservatives, no question, but it's, um, I just, I just think it is not a done deal yet that, that conservatives get swept out of power. So I love that prediction that you came up with, which is off the wall. No one's saying it. Congratulations, Elon. I am the king of off the wall, which sometimes is what DCEKG is all about. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening today at this latest episode, our look back at 23, our forecast for 2024 for DCEKG with Big Wig Media, our distribution partner, Evergreen, our production platform, Riverside, our sponsors, SurvivorsForSolutions.org, 
our producer, John Swartaki, our assistant producer, Eli Levy, DCEKG for host Joe Grogan and myself, Eric Gillen. Thanks for listening in 2023. We'll be talking in 2024. Thanks so much. Thank you.